Well, several months ago, we had planned a sermon series through the book of Lamentations. We're just going to do four sermons through this fairly short book of the Bible, not knowing what we would be facing these days with the coronavirus pandemic. But I just, I'm struck again by God's providence and the way that he orders our steps and the way that, believe it or not, the Holy Spirit can work months in advance and uh, in the planning of sermons and ministries and things that we're doing as a church. So I hope this series over these next four weeks really serves to minister to your heart, church. We deeply miss you. We miss gathering every week. It seems like the wound gets a little deeper, but um, we, are, we are being held by our God. We are being refreshed, and we are thankful for technology that allows us to connect face-to-face sometimes and then also in these morning uh, services as well on Sundays. I'm just reminded as we start Lamentations that not only are we facing a a broad cultural pandemic right now, but we have hurting and suffering people even in our own congregation, physical sufferings, spiritual sufferings, challenges, griefs, pains, sorrows. Um, Our missionaries, both home on furlough, at least two of our missionary families on home from furlough are facing various challenges. And so this is a good book for us to spend some time in these next four weeks And I hope that it will minister to our both congregational soul and to our individual souls personally. So let me pray to that end and ask the Lord to do that in our hearts these next several weeks together. Lord Jesus, uh, if you tarry and give us four more weeks um, together as a congregation, we ask that you, through your spirit, would minister um, your word to our hearts. Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you that it uh, is God-breathed and profitable Um, for training us in righteousness, specifically in training us in how to behave righteously in grief and how to behave righteously when sorrows overwhelm our hearts, how to behave righteously when we are facing the mighty waves that come crashing down upon us. Um, We pray that you would minister to us through your Holy Spirit by your word and that you would teach us and correct us and admonish us and encourage us Um, especially help us who are faint in heart in these days, that you would build us up in the truth and that you would equip us with everything good for doing your will, working in us all that is pleasing in your sight. We ask this in the name of our risen Savior and King, Jesus. Amen. Mark Rogop, um, a pastor in the Indianapolis area, I believe. Could be wrong about that, but I think he's in Indianapolis. Um, Nonetheless, he's a pastor who has recently written a book called Dark Clouds and Deep Mercy. And in that book, he says the following. He says, to cry is human, but to lament is Christian. A few years ago, I was leading a prayer meeting for our church staff. I placed an empty chair in a circle of other chairs. While we were singing, praying, and spontaneously reading scripture... I invited people to make their way to the middle chair and offer a prayer of lament to the Lord. We'd been studying the subject as a church. I thought it would be good to put this minor key song into practice. I also knew there was a lot of pain in the room. After a few minutes of awkward silence, a brave young woman nervously moved to the middle chair. She clutched a small card and sighed. Painful emotions were just under the surface. Her husband, who also served on our staff, quickly joined and knelt beside her. Others soon followed, placing hands on their shoulders, a simple but touching demonstration of entering their grief. With a trembling voice, she read her lament. How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long you withhold the blessing of a child from us? How long will we cry to you? How many more days, months, or years will pass 
with our arms remaining empty? How much longer will we struggle to rejoice with those who rejoice while we sit weeping? But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Thank you, Father. In one short prayer, she vocalized her deep sorrow while simultaneously reaffirming her trust. She wept and remembered. She sobbed and trusted. She lamented. That's what we're talking about in these days together. How to lament. The Psalms are full of it. God's people in church history have done it without rest. And so we hope together to learn how to do it as well. In fact, suffering at every level is an opportunity for us to learn. However, we have to be willing to learn and we have to be willing to listen. Nicholas Wolterstorff says in his book, Lament for a Son, he says, quote, I shall look at the world through tears. Perhaps I shall see them and see things that dried eyes could not see. See, lament can be a prism through which we see a path for growth. It's often the way God works with us as his children. So why are we preaching through lamentations? I was reminded in preparing for this sermon, um, I came across the following quote in a book on preaching and how preachers are sometimes averse to preaching on such things. We typically like to keep things happy and clappy and upbeat and encouraging, but, God, but that isn't real life a lot of times. And so here's what Joel Beakey writes um, in his book on preaching. He says, preachers above all should appreciate the varied experiences of God's children because they serve as spiritual counselors to them. If a pastor thinks that true spirituality equals constant joy, he will wear out himself and his flock with unbiblical expectations. If a pastor tends to equate holiness with unmitigated grief over sin, then he will weaken the people for the joy of the Lord is our strength. Biblical ministry flows out of experiencing both Christ's death and his life as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, 2 Corinthians 6.10. Truly, Reformed ministry weaves together the great themes of experiencing our misery, deliverance, and gratitude. Only then are we able to comfort those which are in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves have received from God. So three quick reasons why we're preaching these next several weeks through the book of Lamentations. First of all, we can be uncomfortable with sadness. Many Christians are uncomfortable with the theme of lament. I mean, when I was opening the, 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 the sermon, giving that, that picture of what happened in that staff meeting, how many of you were a little uncomfortable with that? I know I was. I was pretty uncomfortable. That'd be uncomfortable. Somebody getting that vulnerable and, and broken and, and crying out to God, that might make me uncomfortable. But then you think about it and you're like, ooh, that's exactly what my soul needed. When someone shares a struggle of the soul, it's common to see reactions of visible discomfort. Others, to ease the tension, will often try to find the bright side, change the subject, engage engage in some awkward silence, or promptly leave the room. There's also a temptation to offer sometimes quick and unhelpful responses, but God is very, very comfortable with sadness. In fact, he allowed a journal of those who resent him to be in his book. It's called Lamentations. God's very comfortable with sadness. He inspired a resentful journal to be in his book. 
The Holy Spirit inspired this resentment. It's trusting resentment, but it's resentment. It's not sinful resentment, but it is questioning resentment. Number two, not only can we be uncomfortable with sadness, but we can sometimes be imbalanced in worship. Lament is a language that the church desperately needs to recover. Over a third of the Psalms are minor key prayers that give voice to processing pain in life. They are the largest category in the Psalms. They're bigger than the praise Psalms. And yet most Christians aren't familiar with this biblical prayer language. How many of us have sat in a prayer meeting and people actually said, How long, O Lord, until you deliver us? Are you going to keep us waiting forever? We almost feel like that's irreverent. Like, don't you trust God? I mean, wait on his timing. Our congregational singing and our prayers can be lament light. It concerns me how infrequently lament factors into our worship. I believe this is a uniquely Western and American phenomenon, which our brothers and sisters around the world, our Chinese brothers, our Indian brothers, our Pakistani brothers, were they to come among us, they would be asking questions, why the prosperity? Why the triumphalism? Why the comfort that occupies so much of your worship? So we can be uncomfortable with sadness, but we can also be imbalanced in worship. Several years ago, Carl Truman wrote an article asking a provocative question. The title of the article, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? Here's what he said. A high portion of the Psalter is taken up with lamentation, with feeling sad, unhappy, tormented, and broken. In modern Western culture, these are simply not emotions which have much credibility. People still feel these things, but to admit that they are a normal part of one's everyday life is tantamount to admitting that one has failed in today's health, wealth, and happiness society. In the Psalms, God has given the church a language which allows it to express even the deepest agonies of the human soul in the context of worship, end quote. That's why I love reading through the Psalms together on Sundays. It just confronts us, doesn't it? Sometimes we're, we've come out of a great season of joyful worship. Praise God for that. We should have great joy in our worship. I'm not in any way saying we should come in here and have a dour funeral dirge every week. That would not show that the resurrection happened, right? But nevertheless, when we read the Psalms, oftentimes, even this morning, as, as Pastor Thad led us, we're confronted with this raw reality of injustice and the way leaders are behaving and it just pulls back the mask and shows us reality and so the psalms god's word has a way of just confronting us thirdly as a as introduction we can not only be uncomfortable sadness and imbalanced in worship but thirdly we can be misinformed about life lament does not always lead to an immediate solution this book ends with unresolved hope. And that's where we live, brothers and sisters. Lament does not always bring a quick or timely answer. Grief is not tame. Lament is not a simplistic formula. Instead, lament is the song you sing, believing that God will one day answer and restore. Lament invites us to pray through our struggles with life in a life that's far from perfect. 
Brothers and sisters, there is no happily ever after in the book of Lamentations. Unlike made-for-TV movies, real life rarely resolves itself neatly. One writer said, quote, The paper-thin veneer of a perfect Christian life is a modern invention created with the tools of Western consumerism. The idyllic life untouched by pain is simply not in the Bible or in the long history of the church, end quote. Lamentations is in Scripture because God wants us to understand that lament is not something that's just to be tacked on to our Christian life. It's to be right in the middle of it. One commentator said, God chose not to hide the plaintive cries of the confused. This illustrates that the inspired word of God is bent toward human suffering. I find a surprising comfort in knowing that life in God's world is not all so neat. The untidiness of the book of Lamentations is therapeutic. It reminds me that the unresolved questions of life are, in a sense, an answer in themselves. End quote. So, all that introduction out of the way, I hope you're excited about diving in to this subject in the book of Lamentations. So, a few things about this book to orient us to, to it. The author of Lamentations isn't named in the, in the five chapters here. But most agree that Jeremiah probably wrote it, the prophet Jeremiah. It follows, after all, after his prophecy, and it's right before Ezekiel in the Bible. So you can see 2 Corinthians 35, 25 for the justification for that. The book consists of five poems explaining the judgment of, on Jerusalem because of their sin. God sent the Babylonians to overtake them and to take them out of Jerusalem and bring them into exile. So it's a poetic lament on the siege of Jerusalem and the exile to Babylon, which happened in 587 B.C. Now, each chapter is an acrostic poem. We can't see this in, in English, but if we were to have the Hebrew in front, us, un, in front of us, and you didn't have to know Hebrew, if you just knew the Hebrew alphabet, and you were to look at every single line, you would see that it begins with a new letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters. The first several chapters, at least chapters 1, 2, and 4, if you'll notice that, all have 22 verses, patterned after the 22 verses of the Hebrew alphabet. So 1, 2, and 4 have that pattern. 3 doesn't. It's sort of the mountain peak of the whole book because it's hope. And it has, it's, it's 66 verses. It's three times as long. And each chapter 3 gives three verses to each letter instead of one. And then chapter 5 doesn't follow that pattern. It breaks the pattern altogether as sort of a symbolic representation of how chaotic life feels at that moment for the people of Israel. So it's structured in a very unique way that I hope you can appreciate as we go through it. So let me say something, though, about, about the structure. Here's what Tom Schreiner, New Testament commentator and professor over at Southern Seminary, says about this structure to the book of Lamentations, which I just read a few days ago and found very, very helpful. The book has five chapters, and the first four chapters are an acrostic, whereby each verse begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and the chapters conclude with the last letter of the alphabet. 
Chapter 3 differs from it, consists of 66 verses, and each letter of the Hebrew alphabet is used three times. The unique layout of chapter 3 signals that it's the center of the book and the most important chapter. Chapter 5 lacks the acrostic pattern, but there is still a matching structure for the chapter has 22 verses, which conforms to the number of letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Now here's, and it, here's what he makes of this. He says, the form of the work reminds us, and get this, Grief is powerfully communicated through poetry. For poetry captures and conveys emotion in an artistic form that causes the reader to pause and reflect on the experience relayed. Poetry has an ineffable character that makes it ideal for communicating either joy or sorrow. As Barry Webb notes, the acrostic form of the poems has the effect of giving grief a shape which is itself a kind of resolution. See, grief itself, by its very nature, is a rather formless thing. The mind of a person in deep sorrow characteristically moves in circles, returning again and again to the source of grief, unable to leave it and unable to resolve it. But what the acrostic form does is allow the grief to be fully expressed and yet at the same time set limits to it. I think that's very insightful. That the idea of the, Jerusalem is a wreck, we're going to see in just a minute. The, the people feel totally out of sorts. There has never been a grief like this grief in the Bible. And yet here, what do they do? They sit down and they structure a poetic expression of grief to God that's ordered and regular. Say, that's weird. It's like they're forcing their formless grief into a form that, that, that will help them process it. I think that's immensely insightful and encouraging. So with that said, let's dive in to Lamentations 1 and 2. So I've already told you that the background is the prophet Jeremiah reflecting on the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. He wants the generations to come never to forget this dark moment in Israel's history. Just to remind you what happened. After the reigns of King David and Solomon, the golden years of Israel, the nation was divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom was called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. The northern kingdom was led by one wicked king after another, and after ignoring repeated warnings from many prophets to turn back to God, Israel, that is the northern kingdom, was conquered by Assyria in 722 B.C. The defeat and captivity of the northern tribes should have warned the southern kingdom that they were going to follow soon after. But Judah eventually followed the same path of rebellion as the northern kingdom. The land was filled with idolatry. It was filled with injustice. It was filled with immorality and corruption. Therefore, during this time... God sent Babylon to stage a three-year siege of Jerusalem, which was the capital city of Judah. The people nearly starved to death. Eventually, the wall was breached. The Babylonian army came in and sacked the capital, burned the temple, and tore down the walls surrounding the city of David. Everything of value that was in Jerusalem was taken to Babylon. Those who survived the invasion became exiles and slaves. The glorious temple and the city were in smoldering ruins. And from that ash heap comes the book of Lamentations. So what is lament? 
Lament can be defined as follows. Lament is a loud cry, a howl, or a passionate expression of grief. In other words, lament is how we bring sorrow to God. It's a way we combat silence, bitterness, and anger. I've called this sermon, Crying, the Soul-Killing Danger of Silence. Because when we face suffering, we have two options really, right? Well, there's multiple options. We can, we, can, we can express our grief horizontally to others by complaining about it. We can go quiet and suffer ourselves, or we can go to God. I suppose we could also, instead of complaining, we could seek to exact revenge on the, what we perceive to be the perpetrators of our, of, of our grief. That could be another example. But here we have the, the, the right way to handle grief, that is to cry to God. And to do that, we combat silence, which combats bitterness and anger. It's how Christians grieve. Here's how I'm going to define lament for our series. And believe it or not, I am going to get into the passage. Sorry for the long introduction. We'll we'll move quickly through the passage today. Here's Here's my brief definition for lament. A prayer in pain that leads to trust. A prayer in pain that leads to trust. So, we begin with prayer. Where does lament begin? It begins by crying out to God. It takes faith to pray a lament. Lament is not the absence of faith, it's the presence of faith. What are you doing when you're lamenting? Who are you crying out to? A God you believe in. (laughs) So far from being something that should be avoided, it should be leaned into because don't we want to encourage expressions of faith? I do. To pray in pain is an act of trust where we open up our hearts to God. It's much better than silence. Again, Mark Rogop says, While many people are afraid to lament, the opposite of silent despair is worse. Giving God the silent treatment is the ultimate manifestation of unbelief. Despair lives under the hopeless resignation that God doesn't care, He doesn't hear, and nothing is ever going to change. People who believe this stop praying. They give up. This silence is a soul killer. So with that long introduction out of the way, which we will not repeat in weeks to come, we dive into Lamentations 1 and 2, three points to the sermon this morning. First of all, we want to notice the condition for the crying. What is going on? We've already touched on it a little bit, so we won't spend much time on it. But what is causing this lament from the people? Second, what's the cause of it? What's the cause of the crying? And third, who's the companion in the crying? Condition, cause, companion. Number one, condition. The first word of chapter one and two reflects the tone of the, of the, of the entire book. Now remember, the, uh, the original in, in the Old Testament, when they, when, they, when they named the books, they always named it on the, based on the first line of the book. So this book wasn't originally called Lamentations. You know what it was was called? How. How. The book of how. Now now think of it. That's the first word that begins, right? How. But what an appropriate title. How did this happen? In light of all that we've read concerning the covenant promises of God to rescue and save. We just got out of the book of Exodus. God saved his people. God delivered them. 
God made them his own in spite of great obstacles, both external and internal. Great sin outside of them and great sin within them. God triumphed. Now he's given them up. Now he's divorced them. What in the world is going on here? How? So you can see how chapter 1 begins with this word, how. You know what chapter 2 begins with? How? (laughs) So both chapters 1 and chapter 2 begin with this exclamation, how did this happen? It reflects the suffering they're experiencing. How could this happen to us? How can God allow this? How can God's people survive after this? You ever had that question on your own heart? How? Of course we have. How are we to know what will happen in the future? What has happened? How did this happen? The answer is that Jerusalem has been completely destroyed by the Babylonians. Jerusalem, once the epicenter of the world, a vivacious, lovely place containing the palace of God's king and the temple of God's presence, is now a wasteland. Think Berlin, Germany, post-World War II. Seen those pictures? If you don't, look them up. It's devastating to see that. Look up pictures of Berlin prior to World War II and then look at pictures of Berlin post-World War II. And you're like, there's nothing here. It's, there's nothing. And this would have been similar to what Jerusalem experienced after the sacking of the Babylonians. In the first seven verses, which Pastor Keith read the first five of, I won't reread them. Jerusalem is described as a lonely, bereaved widow. I think that's a very appropriate metaphor to describe what's happened. Jerusalem described, uh, Jeremiah is describing Jerusalem as the princess who has now become a slave. As the paragon of beauty that's now the paragon of ugliness. And the the picture is, is extremely bleak. Look at verse 10. Her uncleanness was in her skirts, and she took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. Verse 10. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she's seen the nations enter the sanctuary, those who forbade to enter the congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see. Is there any sorrow like my sorrow which is brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger? From on high he sent fire into my bones. He made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He's left me stunned and faint all the day long. Verse 14, my transgressions were bound into a yoke by his hand. They were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. And then they're being mocked by people. That's the worst. To be afflicted is one thing, but to be mocked in your affliction is a worse grief still. But that's what's happening. Look at verse 15, chapter 1. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord is trodden as in a winepress, the virgin daughter of Judah. Look at chapter 2 and verse 10, or, or verse 15. All who pass, pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? 
All your enemies rail against you. They hiss. They gnash their teeth. They cry, we've swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we long for. Now we have it. We see it. This is the condition. This is why they're crying. It's horrible. So second, the cause of the crying. What brought it about? What happened? Well, there's two. There's two causes. And one leads to the other. Here's the first cause. The sin of the people. The sin of the people is what did it. Israel did it to themselves. Let's see that. And they know this. Look at verse 1. Or chapter 5, verse 1. Sorry, chapter 1, verse 5. I'll get it right here in a second. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her. Why? For the multitude of her transgressions. Look at verse 8. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore, she became filthy. Couldn't be clearer. Your sins and the multitude of your sins and transgressions are what has brought this about. Chapter 1, verse 10. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things. Who's the enemy? Babylon. So God has used Babylon to reprove Israel, specifically Judah here, for its sins. So what happened? I want you to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 2 where we get a a closer look at, at this sin and what the nature of it was. So just turn back one book in the Bible. We'll come back to Lamentations here in a minute to Jeremiah chapter 2. And I want us to talk briefly about what we see here in Jeremiah 2 concerning the sin of the people of Israel and what it was that they did that brought about this judgment from God. First of all, I want to look at chapter 2 and verse 2 in describing the early days of Israel. Think about Exodus 35 through 40 where we concluded last week. This is what Israel was like, right? Were they ready to throw a party? They were giving generously. They were ready to worship. They were so excited that God had restated the covenant. They're behaving like a wife and a husband on a honeymoon. This is the way Jeremiah paints that picture. Look at chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Jeremiah says, I remember the devotion of your youth, the Lord says. You love as a bride how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord. The first fruits of his harvest, all who hate of it, ate of it, incurred guilt, disaster came upon them. Verses 6 and 7. They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that no, none passes through, where no man dwells, and I brought you into a land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. And when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. See, they were young and in love once. They had a great honeymoon, and then it was over. And so, God is pursuing divorce for their spiritual adultery. Look at chapter 2, verse 5, where we read, Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me as they went far from me? And went after worthlessness and became worthless. God's saying to you, God's saying to the people of Israel, what I ever do to you to deserve this? 
what did I ever do to cause you to walk away from me? See, brothers and sisters, Israel dumped God. It wasn't God that dumped Israel. They committed spiritual adultery on God. They departed from him. The evidence is that when God is indicting them and sending them into exile here in the book of Lamentations, that this was not irreconcilable differences. (laughs) Okay, this is not no-fault divorce. Israel is responsible for this. I'm not going to take time to read the entirety of chapter 2, but just let me summarize some of their sin for you. They changed gods, God said. They swapped gods out. They left the spring of living water and they went and drunk from a broken cistern. They broke off God's easy yoke and wanted to go back to the hard yoke of Egypt. They behaved like a prostitute who would open her legs for whoever came by. They were like a wild vine that grew in in a beautiful field but was not supposed to grow like that. They left an indelible stain behind them. They were lost and wandering. They acted like an animal in heat. They forgot God. That's chapter 2 of Jeremiah. That's a summary of the evidence that God had for sending them into exile. And you know what they said in the face of all that? We've done nothing wrong. They blame shifted. They have none, they have no defense, but they are going to give one anyway. They protest innocence. But God comes along and exposes them in the cross-examination. Look at chapter 2, verses 23 and 25. How can you say, I am not unclean, I have not gone after the Baals? Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there. Verse 25, keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said, it's hopeless, for I have loved foreigners, and after them I will go. Yet she still protests innocence. Look at chapter 2, verse 35. You say, I am innocent. Surely his anger has turned from me. Behold, I will bring you to judgment for saying I have not sinned. See, God does not like when he pegs us in our sin to say, nah, I didn't do it. Or you caused it to happen, God. He said, okay, you want to start talking like that? You want to start saying you have not sinned when you have and blaming me for your sin? Israel's doing all the cheating, but she's blaming God for making her cheat. And in the end, she stands condemned, guilty as charged. God's not going to let it happen. Chapter 2, verse 29, why do you contend with me? You've all transgressed against me, declares the Lord. So the result is that God sends them into exile after being extremely patient with them and sending a prophet named Jeremiah to plead with them to turn. God gave them chance after chance after chance, prophet after prophet after prophet, and yet they continued to rebel. So that's the first cause of the crying was the sin of the people. Second cause of the crying is the wrath of God, the wrath of God. The second reason for this condition condition in the crying is the wrath of God. We see this in chapter 1, verse 12 of Lamentation. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see. If there is any sorrow like my sorrow which you brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. There it is. Notice that while the destruction is attributed first to their sin, 
The main agent is God's wrath and judgment against them. He's the chief actor in this drama. See all the examples of he in verses 13 through 17. Look at that. You see that? From on high, chapter 1, verse 13, he sent fire. He spread a net. He turned me back. He has left me stunned. Verse 14, by his hand they were fastened together. That is the yoke. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot stand. Verse 15, the Lord rejected. He summoned an assembly against me. The Lord has trodden. Verse 16, for these things I weep, my eyes flow over foes with tears, for a comfort is far from me. Verse 17, Zion stretches out her hands, that is the Jerusalem, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. So we see this, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, he, he, he is the one who's acting in this way. I'm not going to take the time to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, but there again you see that it was the Lord who did all this. He threw down Israel's glory. He did not acknowledge his footstool. He is swallowed up. He's demolished. He brought them to the ground. He defiled the kingdom and its le- or brought those to the ground who defiled the kingdom and its leaders. He cut off every horn of Israel. He withdrew his right hand. He has blazed against Jacob. He has strung his bow. He has killed everyone. He is swallowed up. He swallowed up the palaces. He destroyed the fortified cities. He has multiplied mourning and lamentation. He has wrecked his people. The Lord has abolished appointed festivals and Sabbaths and Zion and so on and so on. The first nine verses of chapter 2 are replete with this, the Lord has done it. The Lord has done it. In response to our sin, the Lord has done it. So that's the cause of the crying, is that the, Lord, the, the sin of the people led to the wrath and judgment of God coming down upon them. Now let's conclude with the companion in the crying. We've seen the condition for it, the cause of it, and now the companion in it. I just want you to look at two verses here in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Look at chapter 2, verse 17, where we read, The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He's thrown down without pity. He's made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Their heart cried to the Lord. (laughs) Notice, From verse 17, it's clear, the Lord has done this. And how do the people respond? They cry out to the Lord. They cry out to the Lord. They say in verse 19, Arise, pour out your heart like water before the Lord. Lift your hands to him. Verse 20, look, O Lord, and see. Look here. With whom have you dealt thus? You've never treated a people like you've treated us. There's been desolations in our history that we've seen you do with other nations, but you've never treated other nations like you've treated us. They're crying out to the Lord. Should women eat the fruit of their womb? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? They're they're marshalling arguments. In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by your sword. You've killed them in the day of your anger. Slaughtering them without pity? They're crying out to the Lord. Notice that in spite of their sin and God's wrath against them, they turn to God. (laughs) Where else are you going to (laughs) go? When you've sinned against God, you go to God. (laughs) That's the only place you have to go. We see this again and again in these opening chapters. Chapter 1, verse 9 Look what they say. Oh, Lord, behold my affliction for the enemy has triumphed. 
They do it again in chapter 1, verse 11. As her people groan, look, O Lord, and see. They just, as they're writing this poem, they just break out in spontaneous prayer to God. Look, look at this. I'm describing it. Now look at it, God. Look at what's happening. They say it again in chapters, chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. The Lord is in the right. Look at that. That's, that's good. You're on the right track now. You're on the right track now. The Lord is in the right. He's not treated us unjustly. We deserve this. For I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. We see it again in chapter 1, verse 20. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. We see it again in verse 22. Let all their evil doing come before them and deal with them as you've dealt with me because of my transgression, for my groans are many and my heart's faint. They're praying to God even as they're describing the afflictions that their sin and the wrath of God have brought upon them. Okay, I want to conclude in just the next few minutes by applying this because I think we learn a lot in this passage about how to, how to handle suffering, even self-imposed suffering. I want to make it clear that in Lamentations, this is self-imposed. But all the suffering that God sends into our lives is not as a result of our personal sin. Okay? Sometimes it is. And the Lord will typically make that known. But don't think that any time you're suffering, it's directly owing to your own personal sin against God. It may not be the case. It's owing to sin for sure because we live in a fallen world. But it's not always the case that it's our personal sin that is contributing to our suffering. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it isn't. So let me conclude with what John Piper calls gutsy guilt. Gutsy guilt. I think this is what we see here uh, in Lamentations. Why does he call it gutsy guilt? He says they're, they're owning their guilt. They recognize they've done it, but what are they doing? They're crying out to God anyway. That's gutsy, right? You're going to the one who judged you. It's like being given the verdict uh, in the courtroom. You've heard the sentence passed down from the judge. and You go, judge, judge, one, one minute, one minute. Can I have one minute with you? Now, a lot of times the judge will say no. <laughs> but, but, but in this case, the judge says, come on, come on, give it to me. Let me hear your arguments. Let me hear what you got to say. And so God is, and that takes guts. That takes guts because you may make it worse on yourself. We see this in Micah chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. Listen to these words. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in the darkness, the Lord will be a light for me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I will look upon his vindication. That's gutsy guilt. That's what Piper describes as gutsy guilt. Listen, I'm going to bear God's, the consequences for my sin, but then God's going to come through for me. God's going to come through for me. So notice what they do here. Verse 8, he says that he's fallen. When I fall, I shall rise. Verse 9, because I've sinned against him. The reason is he sinned, just like the people of Israel. Then he says, rejoice not over me, my enemy. So don't you go around mocking and wagging your head at me and, 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 and being really excited that God has dealt with me this way. Don't you, don't you be acting that way. And he says, I'm going to bear the indignation of the Lord. I've sinned. I'm sitting here in dust and ashes. I feel terrible. I feel rotten. I'm going to bear it. God is mad at me. God does get mad at his kids. Not in judicial punishment, not in wrath, but he does get displeased with his kids. 
And we see here, now watch what he does. My God will hear me. I will wait for the God of my salvation. I'm under his indignation, yes. I feel guilty and rotten. I'm going to wait here as long as it takes for my God to become the God of my salvation. And note at the end of verse 8, he says, When I sit in darkness, the Lord's going to be a light for me. This is what a justified sinner learns to do. What gets, what must, we must get gutsy in the face of sorrow and suffering and sin. We have to get gutsy because the devil's going to come along and condemn you. See, you deserved it. See, this is, and then what, what is, what is, what does Bunyan teach us to do in Pilgrim's Progress when Apollyon mounts that assault? Throw it back in his face. Yes, I deserve more. You haven't even touched on the half of it. But Christ is interceding for me. Christ has died for me. Even the worst of sinners, much like me. And so we have to say, listen, even though I'm bearing sadness, God is my light. Just a little sliver of light may be shining, but it's God sending it. And he says, I'm going to wait here until God pleads my cause. I've got an advocate. I've got an advocate with the Father. I've got an advocate with the Father. And then the amazing statement says in verse 9 of Micah 7, until he pleads my cause and executes judgment. God is the one who's going to plead their cause and bring them out. You might, th- you might think he might say he's going to plead the cause against me, but he doesn't say against me. He says for me. He's going to plead my cause for me. Yes, I've sinned. Yes, God is angry with me. Yes, I feel guilty. Yes, it's dark. Yes, there's this little sliver of light, but God is going to become my salvation. God's going to intercede for me. God's going to exercise judgment on my behalf. God's, my enemy's not going to be allowed to rejoice over me. That, Micah 7, is exactly what the people of Israel are doing here in Lamentations chapters 1 and 2. They are getting gutsy with God in the face of their guilt. Let me conclude. Two quotes application, or one quote and an application to Jesus. John Piper commenting on this, uh, this uh, idea of gutsy guilt says, if that isn't gutsy guilt, I don't know what it is. I don't know how people live who don't learn the secret of gutsy guilt because I sin every day. I sin every day. I love the gospel. I love the grace of God. I love the cross of Jesus. And I love to fight for joy as a justified sinner. And I hope you get it. I hope the Holy Spirit would just come now and grant you illumination so that you sense the sweet sufficiency of the blood and righteousness of Christ, like granite under your feet as all the darkness beats against your life so that you can say, Rejoice not over me, devil. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I will rise. Yes, I will sit here for a season. I don't know how long it's going to take the Lord to break in on my heart and completely vindicate me and restore me. I hope it's sooner rather than later, but I'm going to wait because he's on my side and will execute justice for me, end quote. You know what? It's what Jesus did. Matthew 27, 45 and 46. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a lament. It's a lament. It was Jesus who truly experienced the ultimate darkness, the cosmic rejection that Israel is only pictured here. Jesus got way worse than the siege of Babylon. He got God the Father's face 
turning away from him so that we could know that God would never forsake us, that the Lord could promise us in Hebrews 13, 5, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. You know why God can say that to you? Because he did it, he did forsake Jesus. He said to Jesus the opposite of Hebrews 13, 5. He said, I leave you, I forsake you. So that he could say to us, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. Because he was truly abandoned by God, we only seem to be or feel to be abandoned by him. But brother or sister in Christ, you are never abandoned by him. You can feel that way, you can think that way, but that's not the case. We aren't, despite our failures, abandoned by God. When Jesus was suffering in Gethsemane, he could have aborted the mission. He could have said, okay, why should I go literally to hell for these disciples of mine who don't understand me, won't stand by me, can't even stay awake with me in one hour of my greatest need? But he didn't do that. He went into suffering for us. He did not abandon us despite his own suffering. So do you think he's going to abandon you in the midst of your suffering? No. Because of Jesus, there's always hope, even in the darkest moments of your life. Maybe this pandemic has brought about, or maybe you're going through something that really is unrelated to this pandemic, and the Lord is exposing you, your need for him. That's a great gift. It's a great gift of God. Would you turn to him this morning? and cry out to him. You say, but I blew it. I've sinned. He probably won't listen to me. On what basis do you make that claim? The people of Israel sinned grievously, and they cried out to God. You should do exactly the same at the conclusion of this service. Spend some time crying out to God, asking for his restoration in your life, pleading with him to hear you, and for Christ's sake, he will do just that. So may God bless us as we journey through this season of lamentation, And may he give us the hope that only he can give in the face of it. Let's pray together and then we'll sing. Father, we are grateful to you that our suffering and our sorrows do not have the last word. Because of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, all that death can take away from us, all that suffering can take away, cannot compare with the glory that will be revealed to us and the purpose that you were producing in us through the suffering, that our dross is being consumed and our gold is being refined as we cry out to you, lean upon you, and look to you. God, direct our gaze up and beyond our circumstances to the occupied throne of heaven where Christ rules and reigns over all things and help us even now to sing to him with joy in our hearts even as we grieve the reality of sin the reality of suffering, but we do, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Produce that miracle in our lives by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing, brothers and sisters.